Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today we pick up on our continued study on LGBTQ issues and Christianity and how they relate together. In our last several episodes, we talked about just being created in the image of God, God's plan for humanity, and uh, just some basic understandings of the roles and gender roles we find in Scripture for men and women. And today we begin looking at uh, the term LGBTQ and uh, sort of the history behind that term. Uh, The term itself refers to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and more, or questioning and more, depending on um, who you ask. The plus sign um, denotes another Q for, uh, you know, questioning. It also uh, denotes a C for curious, sometimes a U for unsure, sometimes another T for transvestite, sometimes a TS or a two for two-spirited person, or an SA for straight allies. Uh, Current research suggests that the Q for queer is an umbrella term that can mean anything outside the dominant narrative. Another term that I've not seen in the list, but is increasingly popular is pansexual. A pansexual person is someone who does not see himself or herself as being limited in attraction to people of a specific gender. Uh, Rather, a a pansexual person may be attracted to biological males or females or transgender males or transgender females. Uh, To better understand how our culture has arrived at its modern understanding of sexuality and gender issues, here is a brief history of uh, LGBTQ+. So the oldest stories that may refer to homosexuality in history come from ancient Egypt. There have been people who claim that the Bible condemns homosexual practices in Leviticus simply because they were accepted in Egypt and Canaan. This claim, however, is lacking evidence. The stories that come from ancient Egypt, especially one involving two political leaders, uh, Nain Kunhum and Kunhotep, uh, around 2494 to 2345 BC, are contested because there's not enough evidence to fully comprehend the situation. In the case mentioned above here, uh, the two men were depicted as touching noses in a particular picture, which suggests kissing. The problem is that even though these two men shared a tomb, their wives and their children are also depicted with them at the art in the tomb. Uh, It's not clear if they were lovers or perhaps brothers. What is clear is that from the text that we do have, culture in ancient Egypt was more concerned with men not taking passive sexual roles and with women being fertile. Uh, This idea of men not being passive persists to the time of ancient Rome. In ancient Greece and Rome, the most common practices of homosexuality were known as pederasty. Pederasty is the practice of adult men, usually between the ages of 20 and 30, and young boys between the ages of 12 and 21. Some sources have said that kids were as young as six, but the evidence for this is very sparse, and it was certainly not normal practice for someone to take on a boy that young. Uh, The boys were considered youth until they could grow a beard. And the older men in these relationships were to mentor, educate, and protect these younger boys. Typically, a dowry of some kind was paid to the family of the boy, and the sexual acts between them were not considered homosexual by today's standards because the younger boys were in a passive role and were not yet men. Um, Pederasty was also not considered a romantic relationship. The practice would uh, be seen as pedophile or pedophilia in our world today, and it would be condemned. Uh, But here, it was considered to be appropriate because the older man was, in essence, trying to show the younger boy um, how to grow up and be a man. And then uh, in 
ancient Rome, many men, because there was an unequal proportion of men and women in society, uh, many men who couldn't get married as teenagers would get married in their 20s. So they would take on these young boys while they were waiting to get married. But once the young boy was old enough to grow a beard, they had to cease the relationship. Um, in ancient Greece, the love between two adult men was considered inappropriate because one man would have to be in a passive role. And this was looked down on uh, as a social stigma in their society. Throughout history, there is less evidence of love between women than between men. But Sappho was an ancient Greek poet who lived, in the, or lived on the island of Lesbos. She discovered her love for women in her writings, and as a result, the love between women is coined from the name of her island. Hence, uh, lesbianism comes from the island of Lesbos, right? Plato, at one time, wrote favorably of same-sex attraction. In his book, The Republic, he states that societies that do not accept same-sex relationships are barbaric. In a later book, The Symposium, he mentions that women who do not care for men but are only attracted to other women uh, are, um, there's essentially something wrong with that. Um, he then goes on uh, by the end of his life uh, to essentially say that homosexual relationships were contrary to nature, the same as incest and unholy practices. And he makes these comments in his published work, The Laws. In ancient Rome, sexuality was understood as it was in ancient Egypt and Greece as one person being active or dominant or masculine while the other was passive, submissive, or feminine. Men in Rome were free to have sexual relationships with other males as long as they were dominant. It was acceptable for them to have sex with slaves, former slaves, prostitutes, and entertainers. The practice of pederasty also continued into Rome, but was not as prevalent as it was in ancient Greece. Once a boy became a man or a full Roman citizen, it was no longer considered acceptable for the person to be in a passive role and lesbianism itself was less common in ancient Rome. Of the literature that exists today, there are a large number of poems that exist between men and boys. There are less depictions of this kind of love between men and boys in visual art. And in ancient Greece, it was an honor to be portrayed as nude. In Roman culture, nude portrayals in art carried a negative connotation such as defeat. So instead, men were honored by being portrayed wearing a toga. In Roman culture, it was considered a sickness for an older male to want to be penetrated, but it was considered normal for an older male to want to penetrate a handsome younger male. Many male citizens kept male concubines before they were married, or before they got married to a woman. Uh, it's also worth noting that more women were aborted in Rome, uh, and as a result, there was a deficit in female population. This caused many Roman men to marry later, again mentioning uh, what I said a second ago, around the age of 30 or between 20 and 30. Marriage between males was not legal in Rome. It was noted in history that some males had marriage ceremonies, even if they were not legally recognized. It's also noted that marriage was primarily viewed as being between men and women for the purpose of having children. As early as the second century BC, we find Roman laws being established to protect male citizens who are victims of male-to-male -male rape. Roman soldiers were forbidden to marry, but they could have sex with slaves, prostitutes, or other men in the army, or with women who were the spoils of war. Uh, obviously, I've mentioned on here several times now the idea of sex slaves and you know, women being considered property, uh, or people who don't have full citizenship being able to be taken advantage of. These are all things that I think in our society, society today we would negatively look at, we would frown upon. 
I'm just simply sharing what the world was like, the culture was like in the ancient world here. Um, the first Roman emperor reported to have taken a husband was Nero. Uh, though this was in addition to his wives, uh, the Roman people also did not favor Nero as a ruler. In fact, after he died, no one else would even live in his, his palace. They built a new palace for the next Caesar uh, because they wanted to be so separated from Nero. Uh, I mentioned a second ago that male-to-male -male marriage was illegal in Rome. Uh, Nero was the first Caesar who took on a male husband, but again, he had a number of wives as well. Um, in the third century AD, male prostitution was banned, as was marriage between males. Uh, so while it wasn't really legally recognized before, now in the third century AD, it's being completely outlawed. And um, uh, by the end of the fourth century AD, as Christianity became more prominent, passive partners and male-male sex were burned if they were caught. Male-to-male -male sex was declared illegal in 390 AD, and in the 500s AD, homosexuals were blamed for famine, earthquakes, pestilence, and other problems in the land. Before Christianity became legalized in Rome, it seems that people in general did not really oppose bisexuality or homosexuality, so long as both partners were not full citizens of the empire. If they were full citizens, they had full citizenship and full rights as citizens, it would have been looked upon unfavorably. Throughout the Middle Ages, there are a few instances where priests in France and Spain married homosexual couples, but the Catholic Church has always officially argued that marriage was rightly recognized between one man and one woman. This decision was recently upheld again in 2021 by the Catholic Church. In the first two centuries, we find a number of Jewish and Christian authors discussing homosexual practices such as Philo of Alexandria and Paul, who dealt with topics um, in his um, letters in the New Testament. In their writings, we primarily find that homosexual practices are condemned because they involve pederasty, orgies at parties, adultery, and the exploitation of slaves and prostitutes, many of whom were male slaves dressed to look like women. The phenomenon of homosexual monogamy as a sexual orientation wherein two people are allowed to enter into a legal marriage is a new issue in our world today. It just didn't really exist. There was an opportunity for that in the ancient world. There is some writing on transgenderism in history, but not much apart from the gender dysphoria or hermaphroditism. In other words, homosexuality in the time of the Hebrew scriptures and in the era of the New Testament was not equivalent to how it is understood today. As Christians, we must keep this in mind as we right, rightly try to understand the LGBTQ plus community and how it should function within Christianity, within our society, within our world. Um, the coining of the term homosexuality is what we're going to turn our attention to now. Uh, the term homosexual was coined in German in the 1860s, and the term homosexual was first used in the Bible uh, in the Revised Standard Translation in 1946. It has no exact equivalent in the ancient world. The term was used to translate the words arsenikoite, uh, which um, is actually a combination of two terms, but this term was likely coined by the Apostle Paul, and it literally means man and bed. Uh, the term is somehow related to two words used in the um, Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and uh, these words are used in Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, as it relates to sexual laws in uh, the ancient Jewish culture. 
the term as used by Paul seems to have something to do with, um, with pederasty as well as other things. Uh, and we'll discuss that more here in a moment. Uh, but as we, as we continue on, I want to note that the early church fathers were adamantly opposed to pederasty, with only a few individuals mentioning anything about male-to-male sex in general. Jewish authors also primarily spoke against pederasty, but noted that sex with others of the same gender, often found in cultic worship, was something in which the Jews did not partake. Many of the times that you see, uh, you know, orgies and things like that in the ancient world, it was in light of and in correlation with uh, temple worship, and a lot of times temple worship involved prostitution in certain cults. Um, by the end of the fourth century, a number of church fathers condemned any sex that did not involve procreation, including sex for mutual pleasure with one's spouse. This would be heterosexual mutual pleasure, by the way. By the 500s, same-sex practice was officially condemned, and by the time the term homosexual was coined in the 1800s, it had more to do with sexual preference. Uh, in history, we mostly find people who are married having sex with others of the same gender outside of marriage or before a proper marriage. And um, in scripture, when you see this, it would be considered inappropriate because uh, it's something outside of the confines of marriage. Uh, in the last 40 years, the term has even come to mean something slightly different than it meant in the 1800s, and the term now commonly refers to a monogamous same-sex attraction and relationship, whereas in the ancient world, uh, homosexuality or same-sex um, practice was simply the act of having sex with others of the same gender apart from any kind of official relationship because the relationships themselves were condemned in the ancient world. They weren't looked upon favorably. They weren't looked upon as to be permanent, uh, even in the, uh, in the existence or the uh, examples of pederasty, uh, you don't have a permanent relationship. So um, the question then becomes, what exactly does the Bible actually say about homosexuality and homosexual practices? In Genesis 13 and 19, we see the people of Sodom wanting to gang rape the men who were visiting Lot. Uh, Lot then offers these people his daughters. This suggests the people were not strictly homosexual, but were very immoral. Uh, Ezekiel even discusses their lack of care for the poor and cites that as the eventual reason as to why the entire city is destroyed. In Leviticus chapter 18, we find a number of sexual sins listed, including incest, sleeping with close relatives, such as parents, step-parents, siblings, aunts, and uncles. It also states not to have sexual relationships with your uh, sons or daughters-in-law uh, or wives or husbands of your siblings, because these are all considered, uh, if you will, issues of adultery. Uh, they're issues of adultery with your relatives. Uh, it even states not to take two women who are sisters to be rival wives at the same time. Uh, and this, um, in a sense, speaks against polygamy. In Leviticus chapter 18, uh, verse 19, it discusses sexual relationships with women, uh, having women relationships with women during their cycles uh, as being off limits. It follows that uh, with reminding readers not to lie with their neighbor's wives, reminding us again of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Exodus uh, verses 13 and 17, where you have the idea of adultery and coveting a neighbor's wife uh, as being inappropriate. In Leviticus 18, verse 20, we also see uh, a providing, uh, see Moses providing a warning 
about sacrificing children to Moloch in a fire. Uh, Moloch is a false pagan god. And so in Leviticus 18.22, it states that a male is not to lie with another male as one does a woman. And this is followed by verse 23 with the rule that no one is to have sexual relationships with animals. So while most of these verses have to do with adultery, incest, or both, the grammatical structure of verses 19 through 23 seem to be a bit different. Uh, this means that Moses may not be speaking about adultery in verse 22. Um, instead, some have argued that it relates to sleeping with young boys like pederasty, but this also seems to be really outside the practice of the Jewish people at the time, uh, given that nothing in the Hebrew grammar suggests that it has anything to do with young boys. Uh, another interpretive idea is that this passage deals with sexual acts in worship at pagan temples. This could and more likely is the case uh, because it clearly deals with child sacrifice, mentioning Moloch and, and uh, that kind of pagan worship. And since that is listed with this idea of men lying with other men and so on, uh, it seems that there could very well be a connection to the idea of uh, sexuality uh, being incorporated into temple worship. Uh, whether it be a cult temple or a temple from another culture or group outside of the Israelites. Um, either way, um, it makes sense why child sacrifice is listed as a sexual sin with all this other stuff when uh, those kinds of things took place in temple worship. What is clear is that the act of sex with another of the same gender is being forbidden it's not talking about homosexuality in the modern sense of the term, as that was a foreign concept in the ancient world, but it is likely that Moses had in mind the idea that any form of sexual relationships with another of the same gender are done as acts of adultery, even if in pagan worship, because they are acts with someone other than a person's spouse. Note here again that the verse mentions men being with other men, but not women being with other women, likely because that was a much less common thing, and because women did not have the same rights as men. Uh, women couldn't um, divorce men. Men could divorce women, but it, wasn't, it didn't go the opposite direction. And uh, many women uh, were considered essentially property uh, or just like property and had very few rights uh, in comparison to even, you know, slaves who may have been owned. And so uh, Leviticus 20, I think, puts most of the focus on men. Uh, and Leviticus 18 does the same, uh, you know, not having relationships with, you know, your aunts or other people like that, right? Because they are, you know, uh, it's all outside of marriage between the one man and one woman in which sex is supposed to take place in the Jewish community. In Leviticus 20.13, uh, we also find the punishments listed for both child sacrifice and sexual sins. When we come to the New Testament uh, in Luke 17, verse 34, uh, we find that um, there is a passage where it says uh, uh, Jesus states that two are found, you know, two men lying in a bed, one taken and one left. And uh, the passage suggests that it's two men. And some have suggested this shows uh, uh, that there was homosexual behavior happening in the New Testament. However, the term often translated here as bed is the word cleanest. And it refers to a table bed that was often found in affluent Roman homes. Uh, people could sleep on these, but they often ate on them. And if you were having like a dinner party, you would be using these beds to recline and eat together in fellowship. So the passage more likely just refers here to two men eating or talking on the furniture. One disappears. Uh, a side note here, 
this is not uh, in Luke 17, not actually a verse about the rapture, even though uh, many people have interpreted it that way. Some have said that Jesus is saying here to, um, in, uh, uh, well, let me back up just a, just a quick second here. Uh, so in Luke 17, we also get this idea of uh, uh, kids being able to come before Jesus. And some have said that Jesus is saying to let the children come to me uses a Greek term regarding sexual exploit, perhaps against Roman culture, uh, but I've not ever been able to really find much good evidence to that. So if you ever hear people talking about Jesus's call to let the children come to him, suggest his being in favor of, say, pederasty or things like that, um, there's not really any actual evidence for that. Um, furthermore, after the Gospels, we get into the writings of Paul, and Paul embraces the Jewish thought of his day, and uh, the Jews of his day did not participate in same-sex acts. For many Jews, this set them apart, just like circumcision and food laws. Romans 1.26 reads, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So for this reason means because people chose to worship things they created, like false gods, instead of the true God, they were given up to these immoral practices. It's clear here that Paul has in mind the religious prostitution acts of his day. God allowed them to follow these cults to their own destruction. This being said, Paul clearly believes that the same-sex acts are against nature, and he's likely here influenced by texts in Leviticus, which also have uh, pagan worship practices in mind, given the child sacrifice clause we talked about just a second ago. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, the text reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the phrase here, the men who practice homosexuality, is translated from the Greek term arsenikoites and malakoi. Uh, malakoi means soft. The term is most often applied to fine clothing. It suggests here that the man who is this way is either rich and tends to be very frivolous in spending, or perhaps the man who is here is maybe more feminine as the term would have been applied towards women in the first century, uh, not as the term effeminate is understood today necessarily. Now, Kathy Badlock, uh, one scholar writes, today effeminate means having or showing qualities that are considered more suitable to women than to men. The modern word doesn't carry the baggage of ancient negative views of women, but Paul was not writing to a world where women were equal in status with men. Uh, a world where the, to be a woman or to be like a woman was to be honorable or to behave honorably. In light of all this, the best modern translation of Malakoi would include in its meaning an indulgent or excessive disposition, which may at times include sexual excess. Now, the term arsenikoites is again here used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and it's also used in 1 Timothy 1, 10, and appears to be a term coined by Paul. I mentioned something about that a second ago. Uh, but it's meant to reflect two Greek words used in the Greek version of Leviticus 18, uh, where the components words uh, deal with homosexual conduct. Combined, the words mean to bed a male. Uh, so the two words, um, 
Arain and Koite uh, are both using the Septuagint in Leviticus 18. Leviticus, again, deals with sexual sins, as explained uh, just a second ago, and um, usually seen as sexual acts uh, with someone other than the person's wife or husband. In the ancient world, um, homosexuality uh, was understood as uh, a sexual act in addition to marriage, not in a kind of monogamous way. Uh, it was typical or typically considered unnatural because two people of the same gender cannot procreate. In Jewish and Roman culture, marriage was not allowed between two people of the same gender. Homosexuals uh, and homosexual practices were almost exclusively outside of marriage. So while the term does not correlate exactly to the practice today, it does show that Paul did not see the practice of his day in agreement with what the Lord revealed in the law of the Old Testament. With regard to the terminology used by Paul in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, um, uh, well, actually, before I say that, let me say one more thing. So I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it talks about, you know, the thieves and the greedy and the drunkards and all that. Um, and Steve Stanley and I talked about this in the last podcast, but it isn't saying, you know, you know, if you're this, you're going to hell. If you're this, you're going to hell. What it's saying is, and Paul said, you know, his point is, we were, we are all sinners. And those who are characterized by sin, those who are characterized by doing things outside of God's moral will for our lives, um, clearly have chosen those things over love for Christ, love for God. And so uh, it's, it's a, a passage where you have to really look at the context of this uh, to, to fully understand what Paul's trying to say. And in this particular episode, I'm just really working on trying to help everyone understand um, just the, the idea of um, homosexuality as it was understood in that period, as well as how it's been understood through history. So uh, with that being said, um, uh, David Gushy, who is a um, sort of a New Testament scholar who also does a lot of work in Christian ethics, um, uh, discusses his understanding of 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians by saying this, um, and he's, he's, he quotes another scholar named Michael Vassey, but this is David Gushy's quote. Michael Vassey has shown that in imperial Rome, same-sex activity was strongly associated with idolatry, slavery, and social dominance, often the assertion of strong over the weak or the bodies of the weak. And Dale Martin, another scholar, has shown that one of the few uses of the term arsenikoites in Greek literature outside the New Testament, in four instances, it concerned economic exploitation and abuse of power, not same-sex behavior, or more precisely, perhaps, economic exploitation and violence in sex business, as in pimping and forced prostitution. As a result, we can ask, and so here's Gushy's question, how might the history of Christian treatment of gays and lesbians have been different if our senecoite had been translated sex traffickers or sexual exploiters or rapists or sexual predators or pimps. Such translations are plausible, even if not the majority, scholarly reconstruction at this time. And they are at least as adequate or inadequate as homosexual, a term for our culture with a range of meaning, including sexual orientation, identity, and activity, and not a word from Paul's world. Gushy then concludes, very high level scholarly uncertainty about the meaning and translation of these two Greek words exacerbated by profound cultural and linguistic differences between what we think we know about Paul's world and what we do know about our own undermines uh, claims to the conclusiveness of Malakoi and Arsenikoite 
uh, for resolving the LGBTQ issue. I deeply lament the damage done by certain questionable and sometimes cruelly derogatory Bible translations in the lives of vulnerable people made in the image of God. Uh, so here we have, again, uh, just some sort of challenges and questions to, you know, exactly how did Paul, you know, utilize these words and how are they used later? And so the point here that Gushy makes, which is a good point to make, is that when the term that Paul uses that's translated in the Bible as homosexual is used outside of scripture, it almost exclusively involves some kind of exploitation, victimization, and often refers to sex trafficking or raping or um, that kind of stuff. And so uh, you could actually translate the passage that way, but the text itself doesn't require that you translate the passage that way. So as Christians and as Christian scholars, we've got to figure out, you know, what exactly really is the best way to translate this verse. Um, I also want to note that as I was studying this, uh, I took some time to uh, sort of go back and look at translations of the Bible uh, before 1946 to see how they were interpreting the word homosexual in these passages that Paul writes about. And um, in the uh, original uh, King James English, we it just essentially says the sexually perverse. Well, there's not, not really a lot of you know, way to elaborate on that. It makes it a bit difficult to understand. Uh, in the ancient Greek translation, not Greek, in the ancient French translation, uh, I found that um, the, the French Bibles between the 1600s and the 1900s uh, typically referred to um, the terms as boy stealers, which again carries a connotation of kidnapping, uh, taking people into sex slavery, or even potentially pederasty. Um, I also looked at some ancient German translations and found essentially the same thing. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the, uh, and I think it was even Martin Luther's German translation I looked at, it actually used the word kidnappers uh, in, in a particular uh, passage, uh, in, in one of those particular passages, I think it was in the uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians. And so uh, what we do see is that before 1946, uh, the word homosexuality wasn't used because it, you know, hadn't ever been used in the scripture translation. What we do see is that there was some kind of sexual perverseness that had something to do with exploitation or kidnapping or something like that. So that's, that's the idea we get from the terms, and that's the idea we get from looking at the terms as they're used outside of scripture. And so I think we really need to think through that as we continue to discuss how to uh, view this issue in the New Testament. Uh, all that aside, First uh, Timothy 1.10 says, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Uh, again, here we see the term arsenikoites is used, but not mal uh, malakoi here in Timothy. It suggests that something is missing in the above translation of 1 Corinthians 6, as both passages make the same translation, while one has an additional Greek term. But beyond that, it's worth noting here that Paul is also uh, mentioned, uh, has mentioned enslavers or men stealers, and uh, these individuals could be kidnappers. Perhaps he thought the topic of uh, arsenikoi uh, as it related to sex trafficking, like I just mentioned above. So in both 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy 6, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, uh, the terms are not clear, but clearly refer to practices that involve perversion, 
like adultery, rape, prostitution, whether religious in nature or otherwise. The world of the Jews did not look favorably upon same-sex acts. Cultures surrounding the Jewish people often practiced same-sex acts in pagan worship rituals, orgies, and pederasty, and with male slaves and prostitutes. The Roman government had developed laws to protect male Roman citizens from same-sex rape, but considered it acceptable for people without full citizenship or the full rights of citizenship to be sexually used in a passive role, which um, I think we would all look at very negatively today. Uh, one cannot divorce the writings of Paul from the cultural practices of his day. The concept of same-sex monogamy was a foreign concept in the era of the New Testament. The Jewish people and Christians both saw procreation as an important part of marriage. Even if same-sex unions would have been legal in Rome, it seems to me to be unlikely that Paul would have looked at them in a favorable manner because there could have been no procreation in those relationships. That being said, at the heart of Paul's statement in both Corinthians and in Timothy are concerns with pagan worship, false teachings, adultery, and other immoral practices. Paul clearly saw the same-sex practices of his day as being outside the realm of acceptability for Christians, and especially because they were often exploitative adulterous, or involved human trafficking. And so I think we would, as they're looking at sort of the context there and trying to understand what Paul's saying, I think we would all pretty much agree with him in what he's saying. The, the next question becomes, uh, because our world is so different from the world of the first century, what do we do now? And so in some of our upcoming episodes, we'll be talking about that in a little bit more detail. Thanks for your time today, and we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.